Hello and welcome to Fast Charge, the weekly smartphone podcast from the team at Tech Advisor. I am your host, Dom. Return to my normal tech setup after escaping the cursed laptop from hell last week <laughs> that decided to make the podcast an absolute nightmare. Hopefully, we will have none of that today. Uh, I am joined this week by Full House. We have Henry, Lewis, and an Iron. Hello. Hey, hey. And along with the Full House, we have a full set of topics to talk about. Even though this week hasn't been the busiest week for phone news, we've got plenty to chat through. So first up, we are going to be talking about the Sony Xperia 1 Mark IV, the 2022 flagship from Sony, who despite holding a, I think it's fair to say, minuscule market share, still managed to capture quite a lot of the smartphone conversation, and I know have a very, very passionate phone fan base. Um, and we've actually been lucky enough that Two of us have been given samples of the One Mark IV. So Henry and I have both been testing it out for the past week. And I think we agree on a lot, but we're definitely going to disagree on some bits too. So we are going to give our thoughts on that flagship. Second up, we are going to talk about the Poco F4 and X4 GT, both of which launched just a couple of hours ago. They've had a global launch event. Uh, two new mid-rangers are actually about the same price. There's, I think, a €20 Euro price difference between them. But Poco's balanced the spec sheets in some kind of interesting ways. And I also think there might be a little bit of controversy around the F4, which has had a price jump from the F3, despite using the same chipset as last year. Mm. And there are upgrades elsewhere, but yeah. Um, and I have a bit of insight into that because I did manage to chat to someone from Boko this week about that decision and some other bits and pieces. And then finally, Aniron is here because he has posted one of the maddest takes we've had in a while on the website. <laughs> Love it. Which is that Windows, Microsoft should bring back Windows Mobile. Oh. Uh, Aniron thinks the Surface Duo 3 should be a Windows 11 device. And I don't want to say he's wrong, but I do think it's reassuringly bold as an opinion <laughs> to hold right now. We love it. So we are going to talk through what on earth he is on about uh, towards the end of the show. All right, before that, there are some bits of news to chat through. So first up, MediaTek this week unveiled the Dimensity 9000 Plus, which is basically their version of the Snapdragon 8 Plus Gen 1. You can see how they got to the name. Uh, it is a very mildly sped up version of the Dimensity 9000 flagship. Uh, I think it's 5% CPU gains, 10% GPU gains. So it's not radically different. It will probably pop up in some gaming phones because that tends to be where the 8 Plus chipsets end up in mostly gaming devices. Um, the question mark there, though, is actually... The 9000, although it's a great chip on, on in terms of its performance and it's flown through benchmarks, it hasn't really been used that much. Uh, it's in a few phones. It's actually, I checked, not in a single phone in the UK market. And I think there's only one in basically the West, broadly defined, that uses it, which is the regular Vivo X80. Um, but we don't have that in the UK, so we don't get it. Otherwise, it's basically been in China only. It's been in sort of different versions of the X80 Pro and the Oppo Find X5 Pro. They've had a Dimensity version and a Snapdragon version. Uh, it's in the Honor 70 Pro Plus, I think, which also has stuck in China so far. And that's kind of it. It's only had a couple phones. I think one Redmi as well. So they haven't had a big uptake on the 9000. So I'm really curious if they can get more from the 9000 Plus, which you'd think would maybe be a more niche chip than the regular 9000? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a weird time for them to be releasing 
at least in terms of trying to get like the major brands to take it up right because all the major phones for the rest of the year have definitely been made already yeah. <laughs> uh, so and they're coming i mean what do you reckon you're, you're, you're actually more across media tech dom i mean what do you think are we going to see this in something that isn't a gaming phone is some is someone going to bring like a six month upgrade because obviously vivo is every six months at the moment so maybe yeah x90 we might well there's going to be everyone still thinks we're now going to get an x80 pro plus from oh yeah vivo that makes sense before we get an x90 jump and they're going to shift their scheduling about though again everyone thought that would be an 8 plus gen 1 but I wouldn't be shocked since the X80 Pro had both versions. We could see Snapdragon and Immensity versions of that. But again, I wouldn't expect that to launch outside of China. Um, I think that was one of the things we'll talk about a bit when I talk about um, Poco later. But when I was chatting to Kevin Chu, who's Poco's head of global, uh, or rather the head of Poco, Poco Global, um, he was talking about how they decide between Dimensity and Snapdragon chips for different phones. And a big part of what he said is that Snapdragon has brand awareness in Europe that Dimensity mm. doesn't. And of course, this is one of those kind of chicken and egg things. MediaTek can't get big European phones to use their chips yet because they don't have the brand awareness, but they can't get the brand awareness until people start using their chips. Yeah. And it's happening gradually. We're seeing a lot more mid-rangers use them, but they st it still feels like no matter how good their flagship silicon is, no one seems yet willing to take the plunge and do a big global launch of a flagship using the MediaTek yeah. silicon. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that they kind of... If you, if, what you say, they're viewing it that way as well, because like, because if people actually know what chip is inside their phone, then they're going to be a bit of a, an enthusiast anyway, I would argue. Yeah. So mm -hmm. if they want to go for like a mainstream audience, surely it doesn't really matter, right? Because most people who buy an S22 couldn't tell you what processor was inside it. Um, I just think it's funny. Obviously, it's important and we, yeah. we need to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, for general marketing and stuff, like the fact that, you know, Apple goes all out on calling everything with Bionic and <laughs> and oh, yeah. all, all this all this branding is so important to these brands and these decisions whereas i kind of thought maybe they would just be going if they were convinced on price and performance uh benefiting them then it wouldn't be like much of a, an issue to to not go with qualcomm well i think it would vary on the vary by the brand right because poco who you know is the one who said this they're very much an enthusiast brand yeah. that's where they built themselves up is with phone nerds fundamentally so for them it is going to matter what the the kind of awareness of those chip brands is <clears throat> But maybe that's why the Vivo X80, the regular one, that is out across Europe, that is with a MediaTek chip. And presumably Vivo took the view that the kind of people buying an X80 aren't phone enthusiasts in the same way. That's just a nice premium flagship phone. And so they don't care mm. in the same way, perhaps. So, yeah, it'll be something in that space that I think where, where they'll be able to make that push into Europe. Um, though it's worth saying, I, I don't want to sound too downbeat about MediaTek because they also reported this year that their revenue for the first five months of 2022 is up 33% year on year, so through May. So they're still having a great year, even if they're not actually shipping as many of the flagship chips as they'd like to, mm. because they've had such growth in the mid-range, uh, which previously had still been dominated by Snapdragon. Uh, sticking with components, Samsung has announced the Isocell HP3 image sensor, uh, which is their second 200 megapixel camera sensor. It's slightly funny timing because despite a lot of rumors about phones that will use it, nothing has yet used their first 200 megapixel <laughs> image sensor. It must They've not have been very it. good. It's there. <laughs> Even Samsung hasn't put it in a phone yet. Uh, everyone thought one of the Xiaomi 12s might use it. They haven't yet. And even the latest rumors about the 12 Ultra say it won't be in that. 
maybe the S23 Ultra will use it. Maybe something else this year will use the first one. But until then, the second one is now being made. They've managed to make it smaller, so the pixels are smaller, which doesn't necessarily mean better image quality, but it does help with some things around pixel bending and actually just space inside the phone. And, and that is obviously a factor in camera configurations. Um, not to be left behind, Sony is also chasing higher megapixel counts, but, uh, well, they are being left behind, at least in that race. Uh, they're apparently working on, but have not announced, their first 100 megapixel sensor. So they haven't crossed that line yet. Uh, but interestingly, the one they're working on is apparently designed for mid-range phones rather than flagships. Right. Which I think maybe reflects the fact that Sony sees those high megapixel counts as not always tying as closely to image quality. And I think Samsung gets that too, because if you look at their flagships, they actually don't always put really high resolution sensors in them. But their sensor making department <laughs> clearly thinks high sensor, this, high, high pixel counts are what matters. This, this is kind of like reminding me about uh, like rollable screens. Yeah. Uh, and like how you go to CES every year and there would be like, LG would be like, we've got a 100 foot, well, maybe not, you know, rollable screen. And we're like, how much is that? And they're like, oh, $1.5 million. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> what, what? what? Okay, so, <laughs> you know, 200 <laughs> megapixel like uh, sensor, like cool. But, you know, I, just, I, I mean, I, I know Pixel for a long time until the last phone, only, like you were saying, Dom, only had a 12 megapixel lens. Uh, it's not like you need, did I get that right? Or is, yeah. that, is that wrong? Um, it's been 12 for a long time. I can't remember if they've jumped up for the, the sixes. Sixes finally put 50 12, in. And, and Apple for years has just oh. done 12s all round, hasn't it? So... Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but and it's still yeah. 12s on like the S22s other than the Ultra. You know, the Ultra jumps up a lot, but I think the S22s are still mostly 12 meg sensors. And but maybe, uh, the Sony yeah. we'll be talking about in a minute, that's 12 meg sensors. Maybe it's a bit so, like what we were just talking about with um, uh, like MediaTek and, and going for enthusiasts who will be attracted at maybe to mid range devices that outspec yeah. things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The numbers seem to matter a lot more in the mid range space in a funny sort of way. Um, couple of bits of wearable news. Montblanc has announced the Montblanc Summit 3, which has launched, I think, four years after the Summit 2, something like that. It's been a long while. They took their time. Uh, it is €1,250 if you want to go and buy one. Um, it is mostly interesting for the fact that when it ships in July, it will be running Wear OS 3, which makes it only the second device after the Galaxy Watch 4 to run Wear OS 3, and the first that we'll see with stock Wear OS 3 running on it. Um, the Pixel Watch, I guess, is so <laughs> consistently delayed behind when Google must have initially meant to launch it that, yeah, Mont Blanc, of all people, are now beating them to release a Wear <laughs> OS 3 device. Uh, so that will be an interesting one. And then Xiaomi has given a global launch to the Mi Band 7. This has been announced in China before, so we already know all the specs and everything. Uh, but it's coming out worldwide now. It has had a price hike. It is 60 yeah. euros or 55 quid, which is still cheap-ish, but they used to be really, really affordable. And <laughs> they've definitely moved a little bit away from that kind of almost stocking filler price point they were at before. Yeah. That was literally my stocking filler at Christmas for like so many people because it was yeah. so cheap and it, <laughs> it worked so well. Yeah, they're really good. I have to rethink that this year. I'm not, it I'm must not have been the best piece of tech you could buy under 50 quid. Oh basically. my God, yeah. I've not used one since the 4, but it was great. What, what does this one actually add um, over generation? Bigger display, always on display support, and it now does automatic SPO2 sensing cool. rather than manual. So good. Um, no NFC version. There is an NFC version in China, but we don't have it globally. It will probably come out in a couple of months because that's what they did last year for whatever reason. I don't know why they stagger them. But 
they do. <laughs> and finally, let's talk about nothing because we are obligated to. Uh, I know we chatted about nothing for a while on the on the show last week, so we don't want to dwell on it this week, even though there has been another set of new bits of announcements. So one of the big ones is last week we kind of speculated a bit on the LED strips on the back of the phone. We now know basically exactly what they do, thanks to a, a Marcus Brownlee video and then some other sort of deep dives from nothing themselves. So they have kind of some fun little tricks like blowing up around the wireless charging coil when you charge, uh, filling up a battery progress bar when you charge uh, with a wire, um, and sort of flashing in time with notifications and ringtones. So that's cool. The bigger, less positive news is that if you are in the US, you are completely out of luck. Uh, the phone is not getting a North American release of any real kind. Um, the company says they're running what they call a closed beta program with, uh, I think, select media partners, which doesn't sound like a closed beta program. It just sounds like yeah. they're going to give the phone to some YouTubers and press and call it a day. Um, but yeah, they basically said they, they clearly just haven't built it with the parts to work on US networks. They've admitted it will be, I think, unpredictable on T-Mobile. And I think it was Verizon. They said it won't work at all, although I'm not having my round. I mean, AT&T, one of them, they just said it will not work on that network. So, yeah, if you're in the US, sorry, you are not getting a nothing phone. One, they have said they want to break into US in the future, but they're not ready right now. It seems like quite a good business decision. Like, maybe they haven't put the right parts in it, but, like, if you don't have carrier support from day one, as a... Yeah. Yeah. OnePlus, his old company, Carpe's old company, has found out has been more successful with recently, but they just weren't going to get anywhere. You're going to get like a good review in The Verge and then like yeah. you wouldn't sell anything. <laughs> so uh, well, they're probably still going to get a good review in The Verge by the sounds of it. Well, well, that's it. They'll still get all the coverage. We still have no uh, idea one way or another. <laughs> if it's yeah. good or not. <laughs> Might be an awful phone. We'll find out. But uh, yeah, I imagine OnePlus lost a lot of money trying to break into the US market for a very long time. And I think they've turned a corner, but mm. the way they've turned that corner is with cheap phones right now. And that's yeah. where they're finding their success in the US at the moment is with their numbered Nord phones, the N100 and things like that. And actually, I still think the flagships, they're not really selling enough in the US to make it worth their while. So I'm guessing Carlpay has learned that lesson. Um, they do say they want to launch a phone in the US, but I wouldn't hold your breath. I think that will be several years from now rather than the next phone, but we'll see. Um, anyone who wants the phone is going to have problems getting it on launch day, however, because they've also confirmed that in classic OnePlus style, they are using an invite system to buy the first set. Uh, they haven't detailed how that works, but what they've said is that it is a way to make sure members of their community, the people who deserve it the most, get the chance to buy the phone first. Uh, I think, to be fair to them, I think there probably is a genuine practical constraint here, which is there's a limit as a small company to how many things yeah. of these they can build. And they've already done a very good job of building out hype, which may translate into actual genuine demand. And if it does, it will just be impossible to buy for the first few months, and that will frustrate everyone involved. So I kind of see where they're coming from, and it's a way of making sure the fans get it, which will spread word of mouth and hype, and it worked for OnePlus. We've seen this tactic. It paid off uh, years ago with the first OnePlus phone, so it's not a big shock to sit here, but I know that will frustrate some people, uh, especially because for the moment, it's completely opaque as to how you can best position yourself to get an invite to buy a phone <laughs> when that day arrives. Um, Ironically mm, opaque, uh, given how transparent the phone is. <laughs> yes. Uh, and one final little bit of nothing news. It did pop up on Geekbench. So we think we now know unofficially what is inside the phone. Uh, a phone with a nothing model number popped up with 8 gig of RAM and a Snapdragon 778G+. Uh, that is basically the 
up until the 7 Gen 1, the most powerful 7 series chip. So it's an upper mid-ranger, but it's now a slightly older upper mid-ranger. Um, I think that is fine, but I think it may disappoint some people. So I think some people got their hopes up for an 8 series. And I think probably a lot of people who were, even the people like me who were being more sensible, thinking they're not going to do an 8 series, I assumed it would be the 7 Gen 1 because that's there and ready to go. But um, apparently not. It's probably been in the works for a while, right? Had to exactly had to commit. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, realistically, this will still be a pretty powerful phone. It won't be a top tier gaming device, but they've never positioned it as that anyway. And I think for the average user, that'll be more than enough power. But yeah, if you were really hoping for a kind of powerhouse from the nothing, then it looks unlikely. Right. Shall we talk Sony? Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's. <laughs> uh, so Henry, I kind of want to kick it over to you because I know, so Henry and I, saw the phone together for the first time in person a week or two ago and i think we kind of had an interesting we've had opposite journeys in a way because henry came out of the briefing and what he'd seen of the phone being really impressed and thinking he was going to absolutely love it and i think that has mellowed a little bit uh, i came out of the briefing thinking they're fine another sony flagship <laughs> and actually after a little under a week using it i'm enjoying it more than i thought i would um, but Henry, why don't you kick us off on why maybe your your enthusiasm is dulled slightly? Yeah, I'm just because I'm a classic Sony sucker. Like I like Sony stuff, which is like very typical of a tech journalist, isn't it? You know, I've got the the nostalgia <laughs> for the brand. Um, mm -hmm. I I spent my own money recently buying like a high res Walkman. Um, I'm wearing Sony headphones. Like I, I I like it just like people like Apple. You know, um, so. Um, I was in New Zealand for a while. Sony phones do not get sold there. So I haven't actually used the Sony phone since the original uh, Xperia 1, which was kind of, it wasn't leaning into as much of the, um, this is a, you know, alpha camera vibe. So this is all quite new to me and I've watched from afar for the series two and three. And then, so I was excited because I was like, these always get bad reviews. Uh, people don't get it. They don't understand what they're for. You know, I'm like fighting the Sony corner here. And my experience with it, I've, I've had my SIM card in it um, and I've taken it away on a trip. And there's just, it does what they say it does, but with like a whole bullet point list of caveats about more like performance annoyances <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. So I really like the design. Uh, I've got terrible lighting in this room. It just looks like a black slab, doesn't it? I'm just gonna put it down there. Yeah, Dom, Dom, can show, it. Dom can show it off for the video. <laughs> almost the same black slab, but yeah. For the video, uh, <laughs> for the video uh, watches. Um, yeah, I think it's a really nice design. Tall 21 by nine, like the other Xperia ones. Uh, nice matte glass on the back. It does actually pick up a few fingerprints if you're a bit sweaty, uh, but uh, I think it looks nice. And um, the camera can do a hell of a lot. Um, I mean, do, we want, do you want to get into what the camera can do, Dom? Or do you want me to tell you straight up what I have found uh, that's put me off it? I guess let's stick with the highlights and we'll, we can kind of swing back to the go a bit more in depth on the camera because I think that's going to be its own thing, really. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, I guess it's as close in my experience uh, of, in recent years of like, you know, air quotes, stock Android. You, you, can't, mm. you can't really call anything that these days. But if any, if any um, Android 12 version can, I reckon it's this one. They keep some of the the kind of the design of the, the changing the notification tray looks a bit more like a pixel, but then the rest of the uh, OS is like quite plain, which I kind of like. Um, I found the phone runs incredibly hot. Uh, it doesn't come with a charger in the box, so I've just been plugging in my Samsung uh, charger uh, for it. And it, I don't know about you, Don, but it just like turns into like a slab of molten metal. 
it gets very hot when charging. <laughs> yeah. I've not found it gets hot in use, right. but for some reason when charging, the way they're handling cooling while it's charging, wow. Yeah. Mm. Uh, sweltering doesn't when ha- it's when it's plugged in. That doesn't happen often with flagship phones. Uh no, or even it's even a little odd. Yeah, like the, the fast charging that's the thing. <laughs> fast charging phones also, don't redo really yeah. it either. But yeah. I've also found it's a little like I had with the Honor, it's a little unhappy with some third party chargers. Mm. Which you can forgive when a phone ships with a charger, so at least you can say, well, just make sure you use the stock charger. But this doesn't have a charger. So when I'm yeah. diving between all the different chargers in my house, figuring out which one will it like, because if I plug some in, it does that thing where it charges for five seconds, disconnects, charges oh, right. for five, disconnects. Um, the wireless charger on my desk, for some reason, won't charge it. It shows that it's charging, that the battery was still draining while it was sat there, so it clearly wasn't charging, yeah. despite thinking it was. Yeah. Um, so I've had these odd little charging frustrations that, again, I'd be much more forgiving of if they gave you a charger because you just point to that and say, we'll use the original one. At least you've always got that to fall back on. But I don't. I've gone through three or four charges in my house before I found one it seems to like. And as you say, it then heats up um, pretty uncomfortably. I need, to, need to double check if what they gave us are retail units and if it's retail packaging as well because I don't mm. think mine even came with a, a cable in the box. So I have no idea if you're meant to be doing C to C or A to C. And it shouldn't really matter, but if someone's buying this phone and they have, I don't know if it's like damaging the battery with the, the kind of heat that it's kicking out. So um, mm. that that would be my main observation. I found the battery life a bit erratic. Um, I found like I can get a day out of it, but I'm a bit more worried than I am with other phones because it's a bit unpredictable. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think the display isn't as great as they say it is. Um, I actually prefer it when it's on 60 hertz. And when I don't use any of like the, um, I forgot what it's called. Well, there's like the night, the night sight stuff. Um, night, yeah. Yeah. Nightline stuff like that. I found particularly, yeah, in low light when it was up on 120 Hertz, actually when you actually toggle in the settings between 60 and 120, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the, the entire complexion of the screen changes. And I've not seen that on any other phone. Like if you... I haven't noticed this. I, I admit I haven't actually tried this. You mentioned the other day, and I haven't gone and toggled between them um, since I set the phone up the first time. So I can sort of fidget around with it now and see if mine does the same thing. <laughs> I, I noticed it most in dark mode because you've got like a black-ish background. And when you switch on 120, it goes the whole screen goes like a whole shade lighter. I don't know why it has to do that. And so the combination of that with like a night kind of blue light filter, uh, I don't know. It just it looks like there's ghosting when. I've been watching videos like it has like you know what it looks like when black on black is trying to buffer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I have to admit, I'm I'm toggling that right now with dark mode on, and I cannot see any difference in the yeah. display when that's happening. So that may be a minor defect in your unit or something. It'd be really lame I if that know. was a, a dream I had. Uh, that would be lame. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it right now. Yeah, mine is doing it. When I turn it off, right. it's like black, and then I toggle it on, and it goes like a kind of weirder yellowy color. So maybe Strange. maybe it's mine. Yeah, I I don't have that at all, so that might, might be a defect. Interesting. But concerning. And performance is just slightly uneven. Like sometimes I'm powering through it and it keeps up with everything I'm doing. Um, and then sometimes it like grinds to a halt when I have to close stuff. But right. I don't know. I'd had perfect performance until today <laughs> when I did have it crash on me and it just kind of everything went black. And then <laughs> I sort of tried to turn the screen off and on and it kind of hung up on trying to turned back on from the power button and just gave it 30 seconds and it sorted itself out but again it's yeah it's yeah. not the kind of thing you really expect from a flagship 
phone with an H Gen one inside. There's also like a, a, a fingerprint sensor on the side, which works really quickly as so I just used it there. But when I was walking around this weekend, I was holding it quite a lot because I went to a gig and I wanted to use the test the camera. I was holding it like this. But when you hold it like that, I'm just constantly accidentally it thinks I'm trying to open the phone. So then when I actually yep. pick it up and go to oh, open, right, open it, yeah. it's like too many attempts. Must use your pin. Oh, yeah. And it happened like 20 times in a day. And I don't know, it was incredibly annoying. <laughs> I, I've also found not I found that same problem and I've also found the other problem I've had with the fingerprint sensor is I I think there there's a kind of tendency to think physical side mounted finger or back rear mounted fingerprint sensors are better or more reliable than in display ones. But I have found this markedly less reliable at detecting my fingerprint mm. than I've been used to from in display ones for a while. It's far more common now for me to try and scan and not detect or for me to need to kind of wipe my thumb on something before it will recognize my fingerprint. Um, so it's not like it's awful. It's not like it never works, but I've just definitely a, a few more fingerprint scanner frustrations than yeah. I'm used to having. Yeah, there's there's definitely better ones like the one on there's a side one on the Z Fold 3. I found that was really good and I didn't have that mm. issue. And I remember older Sony's you used to be able to have a setting where you could, had to press it it to register yes. and I, yeah. can, I cannot it, this is a button but i cannot find that setting so you only have to lay your finger on it which is a why it's been frustrating but i mean that's i've talked a lot now a lot of moaning what do you make of the uh, the camera the cameras <laughs> done because they basically pitched it to us like it was uh, a camera in your pocket or you, you already have a sony camera and this is the accessory that you buy which is kind of nuts when you think about it but we'll maybe put that to one side and just assess what yeah i mean that. there's this strange thing when from when we were talking to sony about this that the pitch was very much ah oh, this is for people who own alpha cameras and love alpha cameras and know this and then you kind of said oh so you're, you're targeting a niche not mainstream consumer no 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 mainstream consumers will love it too yeah oh okay mm. will they <laughs> um i am not a sony alpha camera user i right, same you know, do do a bit of photography but when i have other dslrs i know are canons so i don't have any meaningful experience with sony's ui in that space um I find these cameras quite confusing to use. I think you can get very good results and it's taken me a few days to get some of those and that's even with the basic mode, but it's a little erratic. So there's the, I mean, this, the first complication is you've just got to figure out which app you're meant to be using. And this is a familiar problem <laughs> that they've made worse for themselves. Last year they had Photo Pro and Cinema Pro. They now have Photo Pro, Video Pro and Cinema Pro. So you have one photo app and two video apps, but you can also do video in the photo app. Um, so if you want to take regular photos, like point and shoot, like a regular camera, don't want to think about it too much, sorry, like a regular phone camera, you use Photo Pro, whatever reason. That is the basic camera app. It also has a pro photo mode within it, which is then modeled on alpha cameras in terms of its UI. If you want to shoot basic point and shoot video, you also use Photo Pro in the basic <laughs> mode, and that, that lets you record video. If you want to do slightly more complicated video, use Video Pro, and if you want to do really complicated video, use Cinema Pro. Yes. And you haven't even mentioned Why? Music Pro. <laughs> yeah, that's not even touching and Music so, Pro. I mean, you don't have to go into that, but that's the other thing that's also confusing, because there's an app called uh, Music Pro, which they say you would use if you were like a recording artist or you just wanted to record um, audio and that uses just the microphones in the phone and then you can kind of edit it on the phone but you can't use external mics for that but they market video pro with the headphone jack as being great for plugging in external microphones uh so there's like two pro apps yeah. one supports yeah. it one doesn't it's 
so we are we are being a bit bit narky about this because <laughs> you can yeah, get good I mean, photos out of the it. phone does cost 1300 pounds it's, so like it's warranted if you're, yeah if you're going to target this kind of pro market if that's your pitch then you've got to kind of deliver on that and my frustration yeah. is also that it, it then makes it they've done it in a way that's like the expense of the normal user because in terms of say the camera side of it like i said i would pitch myself roughly as normal phone camera user i don't generally go into pro modes in my phone cameras um, i will sometimes for testing purposes but if I'm just out taking photos of dinner or a gig, I'm just in the basic mode. And it's just so confusing in this phone to know which app you're meant to use for that, how you're meant to get to it. Yeah. If you tap the wrong thing, suddenly you're in a terrifying pro UI. Um, and even <laughs> in the basic mode, it will probably, it kind of, again, comes down to who the target market here is. The basic mode of the regular app will probably feel familiar and natural if you're used to Sony Alpha cameras. Yeah. But if you're coming from another phone, you're going to hit this camera app and say, well, how do I do anything? Yeah. For example, there is no night mode. You can't just toggle to a night mode. You can't oh, swap between the different kind of photography modes you're going to be used to having in most phone camera apps. Half of them aren't there, and the ones that are there are kind of labeled differently or buried in different settings menus. Yeah. So a lot of the ways a normal person will be used to hitting a camera app and finding the cool stuff they can do, they'll just hit this and go, well, I can't, or I don't know how I can, or it's hidden in a weird toggle or an odd setting somewhere yeah i get i went uh, my mate um loves his sony alpha camera so he knows and i gave it to him when i saw mm. him the other day i was like is this the same and he was like whoa it is actually exactly the same like right yeah <clears throat> all of the um uh, it throws up all the ui on the right hand side and he's like that is like the touchscreen uh, on my camera um but then he was doing all the stuff that he would normally do on his camera but because the sensor is tiny, <laughs> not like, mm -hmm. you know, not yeah. like the huge one on his camera. He was doing stuff the same and all the photos were like quite washed out because he was doing what he was used to. But the, length, like the, right. the, the, the sensor the settings he's used to didn't quite work. Yeah. yeah. So you'd also have to readjust for that as well. And we also should mention that there is a quite a cool hardware feature in here where it's the yeah. first optical uh, zoom that is physically moving between two points rather than using digital in between. So between 3.5 and 5.2, it is actually a moving part in yeah. there. So you have a whole range of optical zoom settings, essentially, with no digital kicking in until you go past uh, the 5.3. Um, Although I will say cool. that zoom in practice isn't actually that far. <laughs> no, that's the problem. It's quite a narrow range. I was it like, was cool. And had... then I went like that. Yeah. And it kind of like goes, Ooh. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same problem they had last year where they didn't have the, you couldn't slide between fully on, on last year's model. You still have the jump between with both being an optical. And again, it's a cool idea, but you compare it to say what Samsung does where it has a three times and a 10 times. And you go, well, here's a meaningful difference in range that you mm. get. This kind of basically roughly doing three times and five times and not even quite that. It's a very small zoom range. And so it is useful and it is cool. I think the hardware accomplishment is phenomenal. Yeah. The practical use people will get out of it. <sighs> I think is, as is so often with periscope zooms, a little limited. Yeah, I still want to give the kudos though. Like I used it all weekend when I was away for video, uh, sorry, for photos mainly. And yeah, I reckon like when I managed to get a good photo, um, it looks really good. Yeah, but that's not because I've done anything. <laughs> yeah, it's just because <laughs> it's been a combination of the hardware and the lighting, getting it right. And so I, it is a little bit trial and error, but. It's hard to blame I, the phone for that when I'm clearly not a professional photographer and that's who they say yeah. it's for. I, th I think it is. It, it's a camera that requires a bit more effort and a bit more work. If you just want a really good point and shoot, this isn't going to be the best one because the algorithmic work they're doing is, I think, a little more limited. 
probably intentionally to give the you know photographers more space to kind of make edits themselves and control settings themselves which means it's a little bit more dependent on the lighting being just right i found it struggles much more even in you know what i would think of as oh this is kind of good lighting the natural space any phone camera should handle well mm. it doesn't always come out really nicely on on this and again i think that's because if i knew i was doing enough to go and toggle with the iso and everything on the fly maybe i could tune it and get the right photo but if you just wanted to be able to see your dog doing something cute and grab a quick <laughs> shot you're going yeah. to get a better photo out of a samsung phone yeah. than you are out of this and that's the frustrating thing because phones are so good these days that to a fault perhaps we review them as cameras a lot of the time particularly for the ones that are marketed like that like the vivo x80 pro and indeed this phone but i think the problem that sony has is that we can review all those other phones like cameras because they actually do the phone stuff really well. Mm. <laughs> and this does do camera stuff really well, but my main gripes with it were all the phone things like charging and not feeling like a molten brick and you know <laughs> performance um, and the fingerprint sensor is annoying and I've clearly got this display issue. Like It could be a great camera, but if it can't do all the normal phone stuff, then that's the things that annoyed me the most about it, which I was disappointed with. Yeah, I get that. I would say there are some other things I really like, uh, which you kind of touched on as well earlier. I do think the design and build are really, really great. I think it looks a little boring in that plain black slab way. I think there are some other colors internationally, but uh, certainly the one I have is just black, and I'm, I'm not sure if the other colors are coming out in, in the UK and Europe or not. Um, but the look and feel of it for that is still very nice, and the finish of the glass is actually really fantastic. Like the feel of the back of the phone is top-notch. I personally love the the cinema aspect ratio, the 21 by nine. I think it's a really comfortable phone to use. It's been one of my great sadnesses of the industry over the last few years that we haven't seen more people copy Sony and take on that that taller, thinner form factor because I actually think it's great. Yeah. And I, I don't know why more people haven't mimicked it because as soon as you hold this phone, it feels more comfortable than almost every other Android phone to use, especially ones that the kind of the size it is with a big display. Uh, the bigger the screen is, the more you want it to be narrow like this one is, and, and they really do a good job there. And like we were talking um, about last week, um, they don't have to worry about a notch because they've got this tiny bezel at the top. So it's actually one of the yeah. few phones with that. And it works. You know, I think I can understand some people will look and say, I don't want bezels on my phone because you can get edge-to-edge -edge displays elsewhere. Um, you know, as always with this stuff, you just get used to what you have. So at first, it's a bit funny having a bezel, and then within a, within a, a day, you're just like, yeah, fine, that's the way that screen looks. It's... It is what it is. It, it doesn't really bother me. Um, and the camera shutter button is great. I love having that. Yeah. It's, oh. you know, really nice. It's always a nice touch. Really good. Loves, you know, obviously as a shortcut to open the camera, it's great. And when actually using the phone, I have been using that as a shutter button. And it is really helpful, at least for landscape shots. So it's not much use if you're taking anything in portrait, obviously. But like Lewis and Anarin, like when you're reviewing phones or using phones, do you dive into the pro modes uh, when you're taking photos? What, what, what do you find appealing about this kind of phone? Uh, I've got to know. Yeah, I was going to say that, yeah, and generally I will, generally when I'm judging a camera, it's on its point and shoot abilities. Um, and then I want to have quick access to like a, go into the wide angle, to go into the zoom, mm -hmm. to quickly be able to test these things. And like Dom says, if there's suddenly a moment that you think, oh, this is great, I want to capture it quickly. And so I know a little bit of knowledge will go a long way when it comes to um, Sony phones and like getting the best out of them. But for me, I find it very frustrating when everything's not in one place, and it's it's kind of yeah. it kind of puts you off using that as your main camera phone when it gets to mm. when it gets so complicated. Yeah, I think um, for me, my camera testing yeah is fairly 
kind of point and shoot kind of thing. I think the, the furthest I'll go is for night modes. I'll get a little tripod out sometimes so I've got a stable shot so I can see what it can really do. Um, but anything beyond that, it's, I don't know. I think it's, I don't think it's important to the everyday consumer. It is for photo nerds mostly, uh, that kind of stuff. And that's kind of why I'm, I just don't understand who the phone's for. Because they say it's, it's tailored towards people that use the Sony ADSLRs and stuff, but that means I've already got the DSLR <laughs> with a better camera. So why would they want a crappy version of the camera in their phone that costs I guess if you're not Aaron, you're not going to carry your DSLR with you everywhere you go. So yeah. for when you do then have your phone around and you're someone who uses those cameras, knows how to use them, knows how to get the most out of them, and you want to be able to do the same with a phone in a familiar UI, mm. I totally get that. And I think, honestly, if you are someone who regularly uses a Sony Alpha camera, you should really look at this as your phone, because if you can afford it and if you're looking for the other kind of things it does, because you probably will find from a camera side it really works for you. At least if you also want your smartphone camera experience to be active rather than passive point and shoot, which which you may not. But, man, it's just a small audience, isn't it? Yeah. Um, they should, they should, and- yeah, they should lean more a bit into like, the Sony thing, though. If only to please like nerds like me, because like they do yeah. have the alpha thing, and then obviously they're giving away the headphones I'm wearing right now uh, with mm-hmm. the phone. Uh, but they don't really, I mean, you know, you can play PlayStation on it. Like if you if you are interested in all these things, audio, PlayStation, alpha cameras, that it does become more appealing, like you say. Yeah. There is one last thing I want to touch on before we move on. Uh, which is just they've also not really delivered in terms of long-term support and with that the kind of eco-friendly side of this device (laughs) so they are only i can't remember are they promising one or two years of android updates i think i think it was two i think it was two i think it's two um but yeah when we spoke to sony about this and we asked and asked why they aren't doing more very much their direct view was well we expect people use the phone for two years and replace it and so it's built to work well for two years and then be replaced fundamentally and that's the model they've they've adopted and you know i think that was fine well it wasn't fine two years ago but it's what everyone did two years ago and it was accepted yeah i i think standards have changed and for both economic and environmental reasons we kind of expect phones to be able to last longer than two years and i'm sure a lot of people are still on a two-year upgrade cycle and that won't change for them but equally a lot of other people aren't and probably more people are going to move that way and yeah, I'm definitely disappointed. They seem to have just shrugged and said, yeah, we expect people to buy the next one in two years' time. It is what it it's is. kind of going to ruin the resale value for it as well. Like That yeah, value exactly. is going to tank so quickly. And yeah, considering it's a £1,300 phone, that's a bit disappointing. Yeah, so I mean, it feels like if you're going to buy it unlocked, are you really going to spend 1300 quid every couple of years? It feels, it's very hard to justify both, as you say, environmentally and economically because it's, when you can get Phones that are better for the average user that are five, six, seven hundred pounds cheaper. It's just very difficult yeah. to justify. Yeah. And that's it. They're just, this isn't for the average user, for better or worse. And Sony may like to pretend they are still kind of pitching this at the average, everyday person and the everyday person will enjoy it. But I don't think the average person will get a lot out of this phone, certainly not okay. given the price and given the other options they have at that price. Or as an iron says, for half of that price. <laughs> um, there's a niche here. And I do think there's enough passionate Sony fans that I know people in that niche will love this phone. And if you know you <laughs> love Sony Xperia phones, this is more of the same. They have not, you know, they've not thrown the baby out with the bathwater. They've not reinvented the wheel. This is 
another Sony Xperia 1 phone. They've refined it. They've fine-tuned it. They've made little tweaks here and there that improve the specs on last year's. They've got that very clever periscopic camera on the back. But it is what it is. It's a slightly weird niche phone that some people are going to absolutely love because it does some things that literally no other phone does, except maybe last year's Sony. You know, getting the 4K display, getting the moving periscopic camera, uh, the video options you have across all of the all of the three rear lenses, that kind of stuff. No one else does this, but most people don't want it. That's better. There's a reason why yeah. most yeah. of them don't do that. <laughs> I, yeah, I did, I did find it interesting. Obviously, there was no Xperia 5 Mark IV, and there are rumors that that's been cancelled. They might not release a new one. So it's obvious that like, at that enthusiast level, they really people are prepared to pay. They want to pay that top dollar. They don't want a, like a compromise experience that's a few hundred pounds cheaper. They'd rather drop yep. either that or drop down to the mid-range, the Xperia 10s. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you have to wonder, as always, how long Sony can keep this up. They were previously doing like three phones a year. They've now dropped two phones a year, seemingly. And you have to wonder how sustainable the, the model is for them. But, you know, I like this phone. I, I've enjoyed using it. I will enjoy using it. I have my gripes with it. And we've, you know, I have griped today. Um, I think Henry has maybe griped harder, but still, <laughs> you know, I like the phone. And for the right person, I would recommend it. I just think... It's a very small group of right people. Um, let's move on to two significantly more affo affordable phones, the Poco F4 and the Poco X4 GT, which both launched today. Um, these are, yeah, they are 399 euros for the F4 and 379 euros for the X4 GT. So that puts them firmly in that kind of cheaper mid-range category. But they both kind of jig their specs in slightly different ways. The F4 is obviously a follow-up to last year's F3. And it keeps the same processor as last year. It has a very similar display to last year. But what they've done is improve the fast charging, tweak the design, and improve the camera in what could be a fairly significant way because it's Poco's first phone with OIS on a rear lens. So we haven't had a chance to try that out, but on paper at least, that could mean this is a pretty good jump for them from a camera perspective. Um, the X4 GT uh, is a little bit more, I mean, for them, GT is their gaming suffix, which tells you a bit more where their priority is. They've gone for a beefier chipset and 144 hertz display, um, though LCD to make that work. And in turn, there's sort of some little drops other ways and the camera doesn't have OIS and, and, and that sort of thing. And it's a slightly sort of bulkier device as a whole. Um, on paper, these both look really impressive. I do think that F4, the biggest problem the F4 has is how good the F3 was, which, uh, Nyron, I think you reviewed the I F3 did, yeah. last year. Um, and I think, I mean, we certainly thought that was among the best mid-range phones you could buy last year, right? Is that yeah. how you remember it? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for that price, all the basics, the performance, the cameras... Uh, I think it was only battery life that was a little bit subpar. I know they have. I don't think they've upgraded the battery life, so that would be my only real concern. Um, yeah. But aside from that, it was really great across the board. Yeah, and and they're still pitching this one as kind of an all rounder. Uh, that's I think the the tagline is all the strengths, which um, is, uh, of the, is. The none of the weaknesses is implicit, but they don't quite perhaps legally can't say it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the the changes from last year are as I said they've they've made the charging faster it's gone from 30 watts to 67 and the camera 
most of the camera is the same, but the main rear lens gone from a 48 megapixel to a 64 meg with OIS. That's a good jump. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the question I think a lot of people are going to have is the chipset side, where they've stuck with the same Snapdragon 870, which I think would be fine in partnership with the other upgrades they've made, except they've also hiked the price up by 50 euros year on year. Um, obviously, inflation is, is rampant at the moment, and that is no doubt part of what's going on, but it is a an inflation-busting price increase. Um, <laughs> I did speak to, as I mentioned, I spoke to Kevin Chu at Poco about this, and basically Qualcomm's fault. Um, he didn't quite put it in those terms, but he made the fair point that there is no natural successor to the Snapdragon 870 because that was essentially a repackaging of the 865. The follow-up to the 865 was the 888, but Qualcomm never released a repackaged 888. There was no 890 or anything like that that kind of offered the same stuff a year later to you know get rid of the parts. Instead, they just jumped to the 8 Gen 1 and left it behind. So Poco's in this weird trap where the next phone or the next chip around the same price would probably be the 7 Gen 1, but that's literally a performance downgrade from the 870. Um, so they couldn't do that. Then the next chip up they could get was the 888, which is a proper flagship chip, even though it's a year old and quite expensive. And they've already had it up priced by 50 euros, but they probably would have had to raise it by 100 or 150 euros to put that one in. And you can see that they're a bit stuck but I do think other people are going to look at this and say, well, hang on, it's a really similar phone to last year, but it costs more. You know, what gives there? Does that sound like it would be a deal breaker to you and Aaron? Yeah, a little bit, especially if I you know, had, if I had the F3, there's really no reason to upgrade. And it feels like there's not, so, I mean, there's not, there's not a compelling, usually, usually if we look at a new phone, we say, oh, the, the chipset's upgraded. And this, we don't have that. We have a few other minor upgrades. Um, it almost feels like, I know it's really uncommon these days, but for a pocket to have skipped a year and then wait until next year, and hopefully there's a chipset available then that would... And then you look at the skip the two years between the two years between them and you think, wow, this is a genuine upgrade now and it may have yep. may sell more. But yeah, it just feels hard, hard to justify at the moment. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of what we've just seen with the OnePlus Nord 2 and to the 2T. Slightly different, mm-hmm. though, because they went with MediaTek so they could go with the, the the next chip up, but then the actual phone itself was practically identical. <laughs> they yeah. just changed the back a little bit. So mid-range, uh, clearly feeling the heat a bit on um, on chip shortages, on chip pricing, on the, you know, the companies can't exactly iterate any further, but feel obviously the need to release a new phone. And that's where my discussion with, uh, with Kevin about the MediaTek versus Snapdragon question and that brand awareness, that's where that came mm. in because part of it was, well, they could have jumped from the 870 over to the next MediaTek up and found something in, on the MediaTek side that might fill that price point and space. But it seems like they wanted to make sure the F4 had a Snapdragon inside uh, to, to kind of, and it is of the phone getting a wider European release than the X4 GT is. It's coming to the UK and the X4 isn't. So it does feel a bit like they were willing to maybe actually, funnily enough, take a performance hit, essentially, to keep a Snapdragon inside so that they could have that that side of the marketing to it that it's got a Snapdragon in. Yeah, 
I clearly think that'll be worth it. Because actually, well, if we're talking about the, the difference there, and then it, the X4 GT has MediaTek. They've got the MediaTek Dimensity 8100, 80, and the X3 GT had a MediaTek chip as well. So maybe it's MediaTek's year you know, for being able to differentiate with the next level on the on the uh, mid-ranges there. It looks like quite an interesting yeah. phone, like you said, Don, with a, uh, an LCD rather than a than an OLED, but I, I've never used an LCD with a really high refresh rate like that. What are the benefits? I don't think I've used 144 hertz, though. Aniron and Lewis, you presumably both have, you, you both look at a lot more gaming, gaming phones. Yeah. I mean, What's the deal here? Compared to, I think 120 is the sweet spot for those people. Is it, unless you've got these specific games or things like that, it's really marginal gains. So it's obviously pitched as an yeah. upgrade, but compared to 120, there's really no noticeable difference. Yeah, I think it's it's more like a homage to the PC gamers because 144 hertz for so long was the the holy grail of PC gaming, and not I mean not so much these days, but that has always been it. But yeah, like an Iron says, there's very little difference in terms of what you'll actually see. Partly because most games don't actually support 144 hertz yeah. uh, on Android. A lot of them now do 120. So yeah, even if you are running 144 hertz, likely you're only getting 120 in the actual game anyway. So. Because in the launch today, they were they showed off Real Racing 3 because it does support it. But yeah, he kind of <laughs> did hint that not every game is going to support that. But the interesting thing I thought was that because they were appealing to Poco's uh, very kind of uh, engaged, nerdy audience, they were like saying, yeah. that, oh, we're using an LCD, which I suppose some people might be like, oh, it's not OLED. But he was the main advantage he was pointing out here was the there's less blue light. So if you're st mm. staring at it for hours, it's going to be easier on your eyes. Like, do you reckon that's that's the case or are they just trying to be like this was cheaper but we can't say that i a similar thing came up in my interview where not the blue light point specifically but they did he did suggest that they wanted to give people a choice between lcd and oled and i do think it is genuine because he'd said it was a thing that had surprised poco itself in surveying people and they had discovered there was a serious pocket of people who preferred lcd and who wanted LCD, and that oh, really? that had surprised them a bit. And so that was part of the idea here is making sure that, you know, it's part of why these two phones are coming together maybe is one's got OLED, one's got LCD. You get the choice depending on your preference. So, yeah, I mean, I think, again, going back to this, you know, mythical average user, I think <laughs> the average user will prefer OLED nine times out of ten. But there definitely are, I guess there must be some people out there who for whatever reason they've got in their head, whether it's the blue light or something else, really you know still want to stick with lcd and, and see some benefit to that don't understand that at all <laughs> <laughs> no i've always taken the view that the reason we see lcd in phones still is because you can put a high refresh rate panel in for cheaper and it's yeah. a way to do 144 hertz when you could never do 144 hertz amoled at 400 euros it would you know it yeah. just doesn't work the maths doesn't line up i suspect that's the dominant force here really but you know, clearly there must be some people out there who uh, who think LCD is is the shit. So good for them. <laughs> it's all the research. We're like, yes, yeah. Finally, we can use this as the excuse. <laughs> <laughs> there is one last thing on these Poco phones I kind of wanted to touch on before we move on, which is Poco is in this funny spot where they're an independent brand from Xiaomi, but they still use all of Xiaomi's R and D, and it's an open secret that every Poco phone fundamentally is some sort of rebranded Xiaomi phone. I haven't yet gone away and dug <laughs> through the Xiaomi lineup to figure out which ones these are. I think the F4 is one of the Redmi K50s, and I'm sure the X4 GT will be something else. Um, 
But one of the weird quirks of that that I've noticed in looking at these phones and their other phones this year is that Poco has really lost its sense of a design language. And if you try and look at their lineup this year, there's just not really much in the way of consistency. And it's really hard to pick out what makes a Poco phone a Poco phone. And even within the same lineups, the, the F4 looks nothing like the F4 GT. The X4 GT looks nothing like the X4 Pro did earlier this year. None of them look anything like their predecessors from last year. <laughs> and it's because, of course, what they really are is grabbing Xiaomi phones from different bits of the Xiaomi lineup and, and rebranding them. But I do think they maybe need to think about kind of crafting the aesthetic of these a little more carefully. And they clearly can make tweaks because the F4 GT, although it was a repackaged Xiaomi phone, it had its own design. They, they did tweak the design a bit in the process. So I wish they would try and do that a little bit more with an eye to building a, a sense of the brand through that. They do in colors. There's a very distinctive Poco yellow they like to do in a lot of them, uh, which we do see in the X4 GT today. But otherwise, I, I feel like there's this sort of, you know, there's not a cohesion. And for a while, it, thought, it felt like there was a cohesion. They used to all have the big Poco logo on the back. I was about to say, yeah. And then they've had a few that have the big blocky camera module at the top like the X4 Pro and the new C40. But there's just so many others that do something completely different and don't look like anything else in their lineup. I don't know why. Maybe it's just my kind of OCD tendencies that <laughs> it bothers me, but it does a little bit. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's just not that much brand loyalty to the to, to that brand that, that people just know that they generally do, you know, decent value things, but they don't really care that it's a Poco phone or anything like that. And they don't really care that they don't look alike because it's just, it's all about specs for them. But, or or if they are, I agree, but or if it's the opposite and they are the people who are getting a new Poco phone every six or 12 months, then it benefits the brand that they look completely different because someone's yeah. not just buying the same thing again. That's a fair point. Yeah. And uh, maybe they think it helps people Again, I guess in that way that they say there's a choice of LCD versus OLED, you also have a choice of different design languages between the devices. And in a sense, maybe that's a good thing compared to, say, the, the idea I had in my head was the, the Galaxy A series range, where if you look at them, they basically all look identical. That appeals yeah. to me, that there's a unity and a theme to all of them. But I suppose there is an argument the other way, that it means that if you don't like that design, you're out of luck Just and you're going to buy a phone months. that's not a Samsung phone. <laughs> yeah. Whereas at least with this one, if you look at the F4 and you think, oh, I don't love the look of that, or maybe the X4 GT you do like the look of, or maybe the F4 GT works for you, or the X4 Pro works for you. You know, one, one of them's got to look right one to one. you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so maybe there's something there. All right, let's move on and turn to our final topic of the day, uh, which is Aniron's ludicrous opinions about the Surface Duo. <laughs> Uh, I'm being very unfair, but yeah, Aniron published a piece on the site right now, which you can go find if you head to techadvisor.com. It's right at the top of the homepage. Uh, I mean, I'll turn to you in a second, Aaron, but basically pitching that the next Surface Duo, i.e. the Surface Duo 3, or whatever it ends up being called, should run Windows 11. Yeah. So, yes. why? Well, I feel... Talk me through. From reviewing the Duo 2, and a few, a few other people have had a similar experience, is that the Duo is... And it's not going to, for most people, it's not replacing their regular smartphone. It's an additional device. And mm. it's an additional device that Microsoft promotes for being great for productivity. In which case, for me, I would think Windows is a better operating system for productivity than Android is. Um, and the Android might have, like, say, the multitasking features, and there will be maybe features to come to make it better at split-screen multitasking for foldables and things like that. But still, ultimately, on most people's phone, you're using one app at a time anyway. Um, 
whereas on Windows, like Windows 11 specifically, it's almost built to run two apps side by side. Um, and there are a few other, few other features like, because um, arguably um, there, was the, there was the Surface Neo, which has been canceled, which had which was like a larger version of the, the Duo. Yeah. So it had like nine, nine inches displays versus 5.8. And that was almost the optimal device because it became like laptop sized screens. Um, I still think if the Duo is going to be this great productivity device, they just have the operating system that Microsoft promotes heavily for productivity. You mentioned screen size with the, the Neo, and I guess that's the obvious sticking point here mm. for me is I don't know what the smallest display you can currently get Windows 11 running on kind of as intended. I'm sure there are some very tiny little notebooks with maybe, you know, an 11-inch panel or something, but they're still a lot bigger than the Duo screen, even if you count the two screens mm. together open wide as one full display. Um, do, do, do you think Microsoft has what it takes to condense Windows 11 into a workable UI at that scale? It could do. I mean, this article was inspired because as a developer, the last few months has been working on trying to optimize Windows 11 to work with the Surface Duo. And I mean, he's only shown like little snippets of how things work. I think it looks promising in a way um, because Windows 10 obviously had its set a separate dedicated tablet mode, but then that always felt quite clunky and not very optimized for touch, even though it was built for that. But literally, what it was yeah, for. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, with this, it looks like because I have to say, if I'm even if I'm using like a regular laptop with a touch screen, very often now I will rather than using the trackpad and stuff, I will. Uh, use touch because it still it feels like Microsoft has made improvements there to the extent that it could it could be a useful um, yeah it could be useful to go into like tablets or or foldables or if Microsoft wanted to expand and make other dual screen devices like the, the Duo I think it could have a lot of potential. Yeah, I tend to agree. Like when my Surface uh, Pro accidentally goes into tablet mode because the keyboard's come unstuck or something, it's like. <laughs> Everything moves. It was definitely worse on a on a bigger screen as well on Windows 10 when it's happened before. But I'm really interested in this idea. So, do you think that like um, if it was running Windows, would you be able to do stuff productivity wise without a virtual keyboard or indeed like a physical keyboard attached? Or are you talking about like turning it around and having like a virtual keyboard on one screen, like a tiny little laptop? How do you think, see it working? Yeah, I think it's got that potential because Microsoft and we we have seen where there's a keyboard on one half and the actual screen on the other. Obviously, that condensed it down to like 5.8 inches, which is like a small smartphone screen, basically, to work from. Um, so I imagine the case would be where you use the on-screen keyboard if you're genuinely out and about and don't have a flat surface or whatever. But then if it's Microsoft makes an accessory or someone else, there could be a you know potential for a keyboard and mouse. But then I suppose it still wouldn't be optimal in that sense. So it's better suited for a fully touch interface and... That when you're going back and you're sitting, you're at home and you you actually want to get stuff done. I imagine people still turn to a laptop, almost to just have another device that could that it's versatile that will work in lots of different scenarios. I can definitely see this working because, like, I've, I've briefly used the original Duo. I've not managed to use the Duo Two yet. Um, but the yeah, it, when you were using two things at once, like it kind of makes sense. <laughs> you like I should be able to do things here. And it's cool that I can look at two things side by side, but I can't do two things at once, which is obviously why you can fold it round and then use it like a giant 
a giant phone. And it is like, I think even in your review, it says, you know, it's hard to use as a phone. So if they were just like, okay, Duo 3, it's got a, I mean, if it was Windows, would it be a phone? I don't know, but you have microphones, I suppose, because obviously everybody is uh, calling each other on Microsoft Teams these days. That's what the, ki- <laughs> that's what the kids are doing. Um, so I can definitely see it. I can definitely see it working and being like doing very kind of like productivity focused tasks like calendar on the left, teams on the right, writing stuff down in OneNote. That's what they say that it's for now. So why would we be using the inferior Android versions of those apps? Yeah. And I, I just think Microsoft has gone to all this effort to like get its own launcher for Android and deliver. I think there's been monthly updates ever since it launched. Yeah. That from when I reviewed it even. There have been big steps forward in how well it works across the dual screens. So it just feels like there's been all this development for Google's mobile operating system, whereas Microsoft makes its own operating system that could be adapted for mobile and I think could still be really effective. I reckon it'd be a good way as well to make it cheaper if they could. Because uh, yeah. like the Surface Pro, you can get... like. I know. It doesn't come with a keyboard, but that's like another hour rant that I could have. But um, <laughs> the Surface Pro on its own is so much cheaper... Uh, than the duo and I know it's because it's harder to make and it's dual screen and it's you know they don't not going to sell as many and yeah but if they could make this under even under a thousand because I know it's on sale now the duo two you can get yeah. it for about 900 quid now yeah. from Microsoft but when it came out it was 1500 pounds mm-hmm. um, but if you're getting a companion device that wasn't trying to be a phone and could come in a little bit under that then I could see people you know being being more inclined to get it as a as a secondary device I'm talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I th- People, aka me. <laughs> <laughs> I th- I do you th- think if they were consciously moving into this space where it's not being pitched as a phone anymore, it's a it's a portable Windows device, would it then make sense? As is coming from the perspective of someone who's not used the Duo at all, either of them, would it make sense to make it larger to kind of more consciously make it this a bit more tablet size when it's fully opened up, mm. and you know put it into that space whereas it is still currently kind of in this awkward bigger than a phone smaller than a tablet position i yeah i think it's perhaps if this was the smallest possible duo and microsoft made bigger alternatives that almost that they would be better optimized for most people's daily use case and it's just almost a branding thing whereas if they're not going to bring back surface neo or ever release it Mm almost that this will be the start of the family of Surface Duo devices, some of which will be a lot bigger. I think that would that'd be the way to go. Because I imagine that, as you say, in its current screen size, for most people, it's, a, it's this awkward middle ground, which doesn't really cater to anyone perfectly. It kind of ties up with the, what we're talking about with the Xperia phone as well, like it being marketed as like a companion thing to if you've got a camera or something like that. Like the, the Surface Duo, it's kind of nuts that it exists because it's like, Harks back to that really nerdy, um, you know, Microsoft enthusiasts got very excited when the Courier uh, leaked years and years ago. And it was meant to be like the Star Trek style pocketbook, right? That, um, and so they've actually made it now. And for the enthusiasts, they love it. And they'll just like we're, we were willing to forgive some of the downsides of the Xperia. People are really willing on the on the communities online to look past what the, the Duo can't do because it's amazing that it can do the things that it does do. And I think that the dual screen thing, I mean, maybe we could like... Uh, talk a bit about how it compares to to foldables because like it multi that, that was going to yeah. be my question because it, you know an iron's vision here of sort of a, a family of duo products sounds interesting and i certainly see the appeal and that's just obviously a very kind of forward-looking 
here's Duo. This will be one of our core product lines for the next five years alongside Surface. But I have that hesitation. Where I'm like, what well, is the Duo going to last? Or, you know, if it, will, will that two screen approach make any sense even two years from now when with, with the rise of, of mainstream foldables? I reckon it would be sick because like, Right, have you have either of you got <laughs> put that on the box? That's it. <laughs> That's sick. Right, have, have you got are you dual monitoring right now? Any of you? I am. Yeah. 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 Cool. So would you do what you are doing now with your dual monitors that you do every day? Would you prefer one really big screen? The answer is no. Yeah. The answer is no. So you get a surface <laughs> duo which has like windows on it, right? because that makes more sense yeah. and it'd be better, just like an iron wrote, tagadvisor.com. And then you plug it in, USB-C, into your two monitors, and it displays from the phone as the PC onto two monitors, and then you have a Windows PC, right? Mm. They should be going down something like that, because it is niche still, like when we talk about Samsung using DeX. The DeX on a Samsung phone has a really good desktop mode. So if Duo yeah. could dual run and dual power two monitors, then I think that would be really appealing to people who would then like be able to carry around their PC at least a portable one, um, even if they've got another desktop somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, the, the DeX comparison is a good point, and I guess ties back into what I was just saying in a way that a lot of work has gone in on the Android side, not really from Google, but certainly from Samsung and from Motorola and, and probably some others, into creating really powerful desktop-style interfaces that, that are Android underneath. We're seeing Apple kind of begin to do the same thing with iPad OS and trying to offer more Mac OS-style interfaces there. Um, but yeah, Microsoft didn't take the same approach of then offering a really powerful phone-style interface that's secretly Windows underneath. Yeah. They just went and said, ah, we'll use Android, it's already there. So yeah, maybe they have sort of, uh, you know, given away some space, some territory to, to Samsung and the like in this fight in that way by not pushing to say, well, if Android can do both, Windows can do both as well. I think that's the thing. They've worked really hard and they've pushed with Windows 11 that you can get run Android apps on it. Obviously, there are, there are quite a few limitations, which I think we've mentioned on, on the show before. But then why couldn't you just run Windows on a smaller device and already oh, have, yeah. and already I mean, have the full Windows apps? R running Android apps on Windows 11 on a phone that used to be an Android <laughs> yeah, phone. Yeah, just gets too much. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. It'd be great. It'd give me a good excuse to buy one. Um, it'd be interesting to see what they do next. I mean, what, do, what are the rumors at the moment in Iron? Is it like Duo 3 is actually coming or is it more? They've been doing so. a lot of software updates, right, for Duo yeah. 2. So I think, this, yeah, I think this year is going to be just software updates and trying to really polish that experience for the people who have already, already bought it, essentially. And then next year, they'll build to a Duo 3. But if, as, as a device of this size, the hardware is actually really good. You know, so it, it feels like a great premium device. They've obviously the first generation didn't have any external cameras for some reason and they've added some really good cameras and this is even a, what a concept yeah <laughs> it's because it's you could fold it all the way back and it was like yeah. flat and it was awesome yeah that's it. But, so if, yeah it, it feels like with, with all these software updates have they have they made really serious improvements because i i, I sort of nearly made the snarky joke earlier and then and then thought better of it but that you know there's sort of maybe this perception oh well you know they couldn't do any worse with Windows than they have done so far with Android on the Surface Duo. Because I know when both of them have come out, the reviews have basically been cool hardware, the software doesn't work. How yeah. true is that still? That's the difficult. We almost want to do like a follow-up review of the Duo 2 because obviously I was testing it last time I had access was January and it has changed a lot since then. So it feels like you need a 
is it actually good as a dual screen device now? And the general consensus from other reviews and people I've seen is yes. So it's it's interesting to see. Because obviously, we're, so you we're want the... them to tear up all that progress they've made? And start again. <laughs> <laughs> Almost like in the first place that they wouldn't have gone down that route necessarily. That there was there was other options for them, but they're obviously, I think there it's it's got it's got a lot of potential as. As you were saying, Henry, about if they can drop that price and keep that price at least below a thousand pounds, there's if it, if it's in the ballpark of some of the other foldables, more affordable foldables, then mm. it's it's got a chance. Because sometimes they're like saying that it should just be cheaper. I know that's slightly lazy journalism because there's a reason <laughs> it's expensive. They know they're not going to sell many of them, and what people who are buying it are getting the things that they want for the price they pay for and it's impossible. So sometimes, you know, going, oh, it should be cheaper doesn't work. But I think for something like this, particularly when they're comparable products from the same line that can do more, um, mm. costs less, then it is a hard comparison. Yeah. Yeah. I think my only, and, sorry, my only hesitation with the duo form factor is that with other foldables, we're trying to say, oh, here's either, or here's a phone that folds in half or here's a phone that can open out to be a tablet, which replaces two of your devices with one. And essentially here, we're now trying to say that is it, it might not be replacing your tablet, it might not be replacing yeah. your phone. It just adds one more device. Now, I imagine a lot of people are trying to kind of streamline yeah. their devices. Carry a phone yeah. and a tablet and a laptop yeah. and a Surface Geo yeah, exactly. 2. Sounds like heaven. <laughs> well, that's it. There is genuinely an audience for whom we say there's a whole new gadget you get to carry around in your bag. They are absolutely in love with the idea. That sounds great. Because, you know, that people are willing to carry around more things to make sure that they have the optimum device for whatever situation they find themselves in. So that, you know, you're at a coffee shop with a small table and your laptop can't quite fit. Well, that's great because now the Duo is the perfect size for this working scenario. And I have optimized my life around making sure I can work, you know, perfectly wherever I am. Whereas, as you say, other people just want to have one thing that yep. does everything. And it's a bit compromised at everything it does, but it's the one thing. Yeah, um, I'm in that camp. Henry, I guess, maybe falls on, <laughs> on the other side of the divide. Well, luckily, the company that's kind of uh, pushing ahead with it is one of the the one with the deepest pockets. So it's it's clearly like a, a bit of a passion project of Panos Panay as well at Microsoft, the, the head of Surface. So it looks mm. like we're going to keep getting it. Um, and at least it at least it does have a bit of conversation. I know Lewis, you'd probably want to throw in the sea, but uh, <laughs> does it interest you at all, Lewis? <laughs> Everything about it offends me. <laughs> I, I will say, yeah, I'll say one thing about it. For better or worse, there is no possible world in which Apple makes this product. No, hell no. Nope. No. 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 <laughs> uh, I think that would do so now. Well done, Iron. You've actually won me around there. I really did think you were um, off on a blinder at the beginning, but I'm, I'm kind of tempted for this Windows Surface device after all. Uh, that will do us for this week. We'll be back same time, same place next week. Talk about more phones and stuff. I'm sure by then nothing will have drip fed us another four uh, new story-worthy bits of information about the Nothing Phone 1 that we will dutifully have to report. Uh, until then, thank you, Henry <laughs> Lewis and Aniron, for joining me. Thank you to everyone who's been watching and listening. Like and subscribe, all that jazz, and see you soon. See ya. Bye.